there is something in the nature of God that wants his love to be shared with other people. And I think that's, that's the most, most, uh, powerful driving force in my own life. I'm not saying it's always there, but this realization that God loves people and God wants his love to be made known. And as I said, that to me is the most powerful driving force, God's own nature and his desire that people know about his love to the, to the degree that they can come into vital relationship with him. But not merely God, but uh, other people and their great need. I don't ever remember hearing anything in all the time I've been at Southwestern as a student in faculty lounge or anywhere else. I don't remember ever hearing anything that would be foreign to the fact that people without Jesus are lost. And they're not only lost, but they're in danger of being eternally lost. I'll be really honest with you. I I, I sort of wish it were different, but the most powerful motive in my own life for sharing the gospel in the years that I've been in ministry, the most powerful motive has been the fact that people are going to be in hell if they don't somehow come into saving faith with Jesus. So the lostness of people, oh, you could expand that. Uh, They're not only lost, but when you're lost, usually you have an emptiness and a hunger on the inside and a desire that's not satisfied. But nevertheless, God and other people. The third reason is just because of what it does for us. I... uh, I don't know many Christians who are actively sharing their faith, who don't find the Christian life to be exciting. God intended that. He believed, I think, that when we get into his redemptive stream, that we discover a degree of excitement that we don't find anywhere else. The tremendous satisfaction in sharing the gospel and uh, telling other people uh, what it does for me, that's, that's a part of a driving force. And, you know, I couldn't imagine anything more wonderful than to get to heaven and to have somebody come up to you and say, hey, you know, I I probably wouldn't be here in heaven if it weren't for you. I mean, Jesus is the one who saved me, but you're the one who told me about him. And if you hadn't told me about him, I might not be here. And I've been waiting on you to come to heaven because I've been wanting to thank you for sharing with me 
I might not be here if it weren't for you. So uh, because of God and because of others and because of what it does for us, I see those as three, at least three areas of driving motivation for sharing the thrilling news of Jesus with others. It's a little sobering, isn't it? A man shortly before his death saying, share Jesus. Uh, last week in class, Dr. Habermas, I didn't know this, but there's a, a scholar who's been dead for a number of years, Cornelius Van Til. Um, I know all of you have the faded poster of Van Til. Um, I'm just kidding. He's a very old Christian philosopher, theologian, and um, very prestigious Ph.D., very accomplished in the academic world. But I didn't know this, but, but Habermas said that in the closing years of Van Til's life, he said, all I want to be remembered as is an evangelist. Think about that. With all the accolades and all of the peer-reviewed publications, all of the groundbreaking books, all the notoriety that Van Til had, it's kind of what we're going to talk about in a few weeks when the Apostle Paul says, take every accomplishment that I have and compare it to Christ, and it is as dung. It is as refuge. Um, when, when Dr. Fish said that it's in the nature of God that he wants people to know, let that sink in. It is within the nature of God that he wants people to know. How do you think that that should affect us if we have not only been made in his nature, but we've been given a new nature, been redeemed and transformed? How should, how should that transform our interaction with people? Secondly, he said that the driving factor is that simply that people without Jesus are lost. Not just that they're misdirected in life, that they don't have, like Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now. If, if that's, I don't want to get on a tangent, but if that's true, okay, if that's true, then that means that heaven is pretty much like hell for most of the Christians who have ever lived. Richard Wormbrand spent years upon years in prison. The Apostle Paul in prison nonstop. Peter executed upside down because he wasn't worthy, he said, to be executed in the same manner of Jesus. Christians today, there's a video that I wanted to show tonight of a girl in China who had been in prison for her faith. We just don't have time to show it. People outside the West right now, Pastor Yusuf in Iran, if this is our best life now, then that's pretty bad. Even if we have a great family, even if we have a great job, all of that is circumstantial, and we should live for so much more. Um, can any of you guys say that you kind of resonate with what Dr. Fish said, which you kind of wish it would be different, maybe? Like that, that hell somehow wasn't forever. And I mean, it just, 
Like when you read the Bible, I don't, I don't know if, if this happens to you, but sometimes when I read the, these, these very tough segments on judgment, and I don't just see that as a theological truth, but I see that as applying to people that I know who are far away from God. And I think that, that when we read Scripture and when we pray, we should not. And I, we're, we're going to, um, on track to finish this series at the end of October. And it'll be basically a year we've spent in systematic theology. Can you believe that? But all of this is, if, if it's just been informational, then I have failed. And we have failed together. I don't want this to be a downer night, but I mean the fact that people are lost... And they are headed to hell forever. If that is not something that is a driving motivation in my life, there's something big time wrong with my heart. That, that, I, can, that I can believe that to be true, to assent to that, that yes, hell is real, and that people who don't know Christ go there forever. But yet, the way in which I use my time creatively to get in with people who are lost if that doesn't happen and I stay back with people who like me and I like them, I mean, give me, what, what, do you, what do you think about that? It's just so convicting to not be complacent and asking to be put in opportunities where you can be an influence with the lost and it's hardest to be an the closer you are to the person that is lost. Right. Right. Family is often the hardest. Amen. And people that you know very close. Um, I, I know some people say, well, I don't I don't know that many lost people. Well, you know, some of us didn't know how to like, let's say we're good fly fisher, fishermen or fisherwomen today. There's a time in which we didn't know how to do that, but we had a desire to learn. And doggone it, we went and we bought a book or we got on the Internet or we talked to somebody who knew how because we really wanted it. So, if, if, if you know, you're in a state of life where maybe people that you work with are believers or they're already plugged into the church, ask God to give you creativity to connect in other ways in the community somehow to be in with lost people wherever they are. Um, Reinhard Bonnke, he's a, that's an interesting name, he's a German evangelist, he's a charismatic, um, loves the Lord, and I heard him preach a sermon in 04, and he, I mean, the man is just a phenomenal, he can speak English very well, and he... He's just so demonstrative in the way he preaches. And he says, the reason why you don't go fishing in the bathtub is because the fish ain't there. <laughs> and he, you know, it's kind of out of character to see a German guy get that fired up and he just kind of let it hang out. He's doing this like, duh. And he says, when you go fishing, you go where the fish are. And everybody was like, amen. I was like, hello, Jeff. You know, go, go where the fish are. Number three, I think this is so, so transformational. He says that we should share the gospel because of what it does for us. I think of the last time you were able to speak the gospel. Maybe, maybe not all of it. Because often when you try to get into it, you get interrupted. Things happen. Demonic cats come in. 
you know, demented and perverted chihuahuas come in, and then you're the, you know, the crazy ant comes in, and it's just like all these things are happening, and you just don't know. It's like, Lord, I've wanted to try to finish it, but you can't. But you were able to do enough to let them know that you cared, and that Christ cared, and that Jesus can save. And the feeling, I don't know of any other way to describe that, maybe a sense would be a better word, but just the overwhelming uh, feeling that the Lord gives you. I'll tell you what, that's what he's talking about when Fish talked about it being exciting. And this statement right here, it blew me away. I may put this on Twitter tonight. He said, "Would it? maybe it is the case that when we're in heaven, someone walks up to us and they say, Jesus is the one who saved me, but you're the one who told me. Now, that is not a statement that, that takes down the sovereignty of God. Dr. Fish believes strongly in that. But it is an affirmation that God sovereignly uses people to carry out his sovereign ends. That means you and I. Um, I I don't have all that much commentary on it, um, but I, I just I just pray that that God continues to give us a heart um, to be people that share the gospel. Plain and simple. We can be known as a church that preaches expositorily on Sunday morning, that has cool themed Bible studies for uh, various ages, but at the end of the day, if we don't share the gospel, um, we miss out on, on so much. So, um, what I gave you in the handout, um, I'm not sure if we're going to get to any of that tonight, but I wanted to give it to you because this is the same handout that I gave uh, about a year and a half ago. I just said, let's take a Wednesday night and go through all the views, and I think it was the most counterproductive thing that I have ever done in my entire ministry, because most of the terms are unfamiliar, and it's like, what in the world is going on here? So that's for you to take home, to check out. This is it was actually compiled by Dr. Paige Patterson, the president of Southwestern, of most of the major views that you'll find in any systematic theology textbook, any book on Bible doctrine, of ways that people have historically interpreted the return of Christ, the tribulation, the final judgments, and so forth and so on. But carrying over from last week, we're talking about this scenario. You take two believers, all right? Let's let's say it's a man and a woman. They both claim to be believers, all right? Let's say they are. Something happens, and they get divorced. There's bitterness. There's fighting. They go their separate ways. They're still plugged in with church. They may still, you know, be involved in ministry to some extent, but there is, is, is drama still there. Or we could use the scenario that we referred to last week that is simply, um, church drama. People getting so angry at one another, they say, well, I'm never going back to that church. And this group stomps out over here. And this group stomps inside the church. And this group goes over here. And then you get like Second Baptist Church of the Tent Peg and so forth. And all of these problems. And here's the thing that has bothered me intellectually for years until I heard a sermon by Erwin Lutzer on the judgment seat of Christ. There's either going to have to be a supernatural re-altering by God of believers, of their whole personality, if in fact they are saved, to make heaven not hell. Right? Think about it. I've only been here for a little over two years, but some of you can tell me of people in Franklin County that have left churches, not based upon good grounds, but they've left just mad and angry, and they talk about their former church. 
I mean, if you needed a drill press, you just put some steel between their teeth. They're just going to grind it out, you know, and just give them a ball bearing and they'll have it flat as a frisbee, you know, like the silver surfer. They're just angry. And then you think, this person claims to believe in Jesus, the inerrancy of Scripture. This person over here who hates them just as much claims the same thing. So they both claim to be going to the same place to be in bliss, loving Jesus, who is the author of salvation, which is all about forgiveness. How's that actually going to work? So that's what we're going to try to unpack here tonight. Um, The Bema Seat, and we're going to uh, read these two passages before we really get cranked off here. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 15 first. The Bible says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by what? By fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a what? Reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 9. The Bible says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And something that's not on the PowerPoint, but you can turn to, is Romans chapter 14 in verse 10. It's the same concept, Romans chapter 14 in verse 10. The Bible says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So, talk to me. What are maybe the main idea of those passages? What what would stand out from that? The first verse that you were reading through, that would mean a lot to me whenever I would say, because my wife and I were in the Church of Christ for 10 years, before we ever went to a Baptist church. And you'll never, ever hear that verse ever preached, ever. And I remember the guy living toward explained that verse. Because when you're talking to people, and they had this whole thing of Armenianism, of being able to lose your salvation, etc., and didn't understand the concept. Mm-hmm. But you explain it with that verse, and it's like, ah, that makes such perfect sense. Yeah is basically the bad stuff is gone. And all that's left is what did you do for Christ? Mm-hmm. That's what you take with you. Right. Right. Good. Good. Okay. Um, we're going to show uh, a couple of pictures here. And this, this, this is very um, helpful for me. Someone says, what in the world is a Bema seat and why does it matter? Okay, is that a reference to Star Trek, a Bema seat? I don't, I don't know. It's kind of like Star Trek Street, you know, Bema seat. So, um, this would be in the Roman world, uh, where the ruler would stand or sit here, like on a local or a magistrate level, and the person who was giving an account would kneel here. The Bema seat. 
This is actually the word that is used in these texts as referring to the judgment seat of Christ. It's different than judgment day, capital J, J, capital D, that we'll look at in just a moment, coming from Revelation 20 to where lost people are judged, all right? Now, this next one, um, that is classic Dr. Charles Stanley. <laughs> yeah, I snagged a picture of him. I said, I gotta get, oh, no way, because there's actually, I'm um, on the internet, this is in Latin here, which we use the Roman alphabet in, in English. It says Bema. So this is another angle of it. But it's so close. All you see is just Bema and then bricks. So it zoomed out and I was like, no way we get a two for one. Epic Charles Stanley and the Bema seat. So, um, but that's, that's the concept. The concept is there's an accounting being given to a leader for, for what has been done. So that's, that's what the Bema seat is. All right? And... The application points, we're going to do this first, okay? Because often we never get to it, and that's so bad to do a study in God's Word and not, and not apply it. So um, take this into account for what we've studied the last two weeks with the intermediate state, with the reality that people who reject Christ go immediately to hell. The, the spirit of those people who have received Christ go, it goes into the presence of God. Number one, make a list of people you know who, may, who need Christ. I just, the re, most recent list I did was in Romania on the flight back. Because when you're on a flight that lasts longer than the seven-year tribulation, you find time to, and I was like, I need to do this. And I, I mean, I, I write small anyway, and I had one of these little pads. It was incredible the number of people that, that just Franklin County, not people that I knew before moving here, it's huge. So make a list, all right? That's the application point. Um, if you love Jesus, make a list. Unless you, and some people can remember things just absolutely total photographic memory. That may be fine, but for the rest of us who need to be reminded, make it make a list. Number two, develop an action plan to share the gospel with them or bring them to hear the gospel. Make a plan. To fail to plan is to what? Plan to fail. Make a plan. It can be anywhere uh, from going to see the team over in Salem to go hang out on Friday night watching uh, um, Franklin County to go out somewhere and eat, to go hunting, I mean, what, whatever. Uh, number three, reject practical atheism. Let me define this. Practical atheism says, I believe in the Bible, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I believe that heaven is real and hell is real. But in my practice, I never share the gospel with anyone. That's called practical atheism. Okay? Here's what I don't have a problem with. They're wrong, but Buddhists, they think you've got a lot of chances. Hindus, this life is really not that big of a deal. So it would make sense not to be really radical in trying to convert people to Hinduism and Buddhism, right? Because you've got another chance, and then again, truth is relative anyway. But if a person believes, they say, I believe the Bible, I'm like, are you sure? I had a conversation with a a college student today uh, over lunch about questions regarding the truth of God's word and so forth. If you believe this, you are saying that you believe that if people don't have Jesus, then they go to hell forever. And if you have any level of humanity then that means that you would be obligated to do your utmost in making sure as many people heard that life-saving message as possible before you die. I mean, isn't that, isn't that logical? 
unless we just say, you know what, I don't care. And then that would be a category of a moral monster. So number four, be comforted by the promise given to believers. This goes back to the last couple of weeks. The promise to believers is that when we die, we go into the presence of God. That's where we go. We go to, to use the Jewish uh, phrase, to go to Abraham's bosom, the place of comfort and security. All right. So here's questions that we're going to look at tonight. Uh, will I be judged for sins committed before I became a Christian? Uh, quick answer, no. All right. Sins that have been committed before we got saved have been forgiven. Now, in one sense, all of our sins have been forgiven. Past, present, and future. First John says that we pass from death to life. This question can be misinterpreted to say that God forgives you up to the point you get saved, but then after that, you got to keep a real close tap. It's not what this question is saying. All right? It means that we will be judged based upon our faithfulness after we got saved. Second question, how will this judgment affect my eternal destiny? The Bema Seat is for believers that will affect their quality of heaven. The level to which they will enjoy it. This is not the Bema Seat. Nowhere in Scripture has any reference to saying that if you have a few works that pass the fire test, that you don't get to go to heaven. This is simply uh, judging our faithfulness to Christ, not our ability to get in heaven. Okay. Uh, number three, what are the rewards? We're just going to go into some scriptures. So um, I'm just going to read a few scriptures here regarding crowns and rewards because um, for most of us, we have not lived our whole life wanting crowns. Like when we were a kid, we didn't say, I want a crown for my birthday. So let's just break down what the New Testament says. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one who receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or a crown, which is cool if your name Stephanie or Stephen. The word Stephanos in Greek is crown. So you can tell the Stephens and the Stephanies you are your crown. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. That means the New Testament likes boxing. Okay. Uh, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the ESV, and this right here has to do, uh, the word wreath is the same word for crown. Matthew 6, 19 and 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you're, if you're taking notes, and you can take notes on uh, the handout here tonight, if you'd like to, um, the thing that we can gain from this text is that when we give financially to support what God says is valuable, we give with the right motives that there's going to be treasure in heaven. Second right. Timothy four eight. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So there's something called the crown of righteousness. Okay? 
The crown of righteousness would be something that we don't purchase because of our good deeds. It's something that Christ purchases for us. Um, here's several. First Peter 5.4 And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Revelation 2.10 Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And for the ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the what? The crown of life. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Okay, so from these verses, we see that there are two metaphors that the Lord uses. One would be rewards, and the other would be crowns. Alright, and we're going to try tonight and next week to break down exactly what that is. But, we have to understand that in the context of these verses, that our obedience matters to Christ. Here's a few verses. Uh, Matthew 5.12, Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. So this means that when you're persecuted for being a follower of Christ, when people tell you you're too radical for Jesus, that there is a reward in heaven for you. Matthew 10, 41 and 42. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. A cup of water, when you're Jesus talking and you created everything that is, that's his way of communicating to us that the smallest, most insignificant thing from the world's eyes that we do for people in the name of Jesus Christ It is a reward for us in heaven. Now right here, let's stop. Sometimes we want to be falsely pious and say, well, I I don't want to work for rewards. It almost sounds like I'm I'm just trying to do things for God so that he'll give things to me. I mean, doesn't that it doesn't it come across that way sometimes? So, So, Jeff, what you're saying is that I'm supposed to be faithful and obedient to Christ and that my obedience impacts my level of rewards. Isn't that kind of selfish? That's the way we think sometimes. Well, Jesus is the source of all joy. Amen? The source of all joy. The blessings that often we get joy from. Like from little Micah. Friendship. The jobs that we work. The God-honoring labor. To say, you know what? I was able to go out and face the world and do this. And bring home uh, you know, whatever for my family. Or support my husband. Or so forth and so on. All of those things, they come from Christ. So the fact that we are serving Him, He is the source of all goodness. In fact, the book of James says in chapter 1, I think it's in verse 18, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. It comes from above. So it's not selfish when we obey Him knowing that He will reward us. Okay? And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Because sometimes we almost think like we're supposed to be Christian monks. To say, well, I want to serve Jesus, but I don't want anything out of it. We get Jesus. We have Jesus. But because He's so gracious, He offers us rewards 
on top of our relationship with Him. Another text, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This right here should be such a confidence booster, that when we may get discouraged, we don't throw away our confidence that God will prevail. That God is for me, and who can be against me. I I talked um, with a person uh, not too long ago about depression. And how often those things can come over things that have happened in the past, uncertainty in the future. You can put anything within that. But the Bible says that we don't throw away our confidence in Christ because at the end of the road of confidence in Him, there is great reward. I think that's an awesome promise in itself. Hebrews 11.6 And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh. And that He rewards those who seek Him. Let that sink in. Without faith it's impossible to please Him. For if we're going to draw near to God, and that's what if if you're in a Baptist church on a Wednesday night studying the Bible, it's probably a good sign that you want the Lord in your life. Amen? Right? And it's like, I, I want more. And the Sunday morning is not enough for me. I want as much as I can get, as much as I can, whatever. So if we're going to draw near to God, we believe that He's real. That makes sense, right? Like you can't draw near to something that's not in existence. But that He rewards those who seek Him. Now this is not the picture of a, a child in the line at Walmart screaming for their mom and dad or grandparent to give them candy. I want, I want. But it's simply saying, God, because you exist and because you are good and you promised rewards, I'm asking you. Remember the prayer of Jabez that kind of got twisted around several years ago? Jabez was confident and then he said, God, I want you to bless me. Do you know there's nothing wrong with asking the Lord to bless us if in fact we're going to use that blessing to magnify Him even more? So, this is Hebrews 11.26. He considered, speaking of Moses... The reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Imagine if you had been the adopted child of the most powerful man in the world. But yet you threw all that away to become a pastor of a two million member, conniving, murmuring, complaining, lack of faith group of people. Do you realize the headaches that Moses adopted when he signed up and he said, God, I'm I'm willing to go? It says because he was looking forward to the reward. That means that every sacrifice that you make for Christ time-wise, financial-wise, the fact that you take time to pray for people, the time, the fact that you take time out of a busy day to just say, God, I need you to speak to me from your word, the fact that during the course of your day, when you just have that communion like the Apostle Paul to be in the spirit of prayer, what you're saying is that I could surely, yeah, people say I could use my time and my money and this for other things, but I believe that God can give me more than my mind can think up on its own. And that's a point that we have to come to in following Christ, to say, you know what, I'm going to look forward to what God has for me. Isn't this kind of exciting? 
Because we're, we're going to hone this down. Um, we've got nine minutes left to, to do this. I don't know if we can finish it all tonight. But when we see what the rewards are, we're going to have a sharper view, focus. But there's nothing in Scripture that says exactly, 100% to the exclusion of everything else, this is what the rewards are. But if we believe that God is who He said He is, that means that it's almost like a surprise gift and not the kind that you get from people who give you strange gifts. Um, have you ever been to there? Yeah, that place where people give you a gift and it's awesome. I don't know what this is, but thank you very much. Second uh, John verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. This is talking about um, falling out of fellowship with Christ and going back upon the gospel. Um, I just want to make a note. If y'all... Just like on Sunday, I, I, when, I, when I deal with stuff like that on Sunday morning, I always struggle with am I taking up too much time to deal with the fact that Jesus had a wife or this so-called discovery. But I really want um, all of us in our church to know that we have a such a solid, historical, uh, logical, uh, rational basis upon which to believe the Word of God. Okay? And I talk to, to students on a fairly regular basis about doubts that they have about the Bible. If you ever have doubts or something that someone has told you, or um, if you've had the unfortunate experience of going to uh, maybe a quasi-Christian college to where someone in a religion or philosophy class tells you that the Bible is not true and you're not exactly sure how to respond with it. It may even be a show on TV. Would you just do me a favor of let me know and let's talk about it? Because often in church we feel guilty if we have doubts, don't we? Right? Right? We're supposed to show up on Sunday morning. Man, I don't have any doubt at all that God allowed this person to go through this sickness. I said, you know, trust in the Lord and have nothing to fear. No, we have doubts on the emotional level, sometimes on the intellectual level. And for us to just be real and honest, you are not second class. In fact, you may just be an honest believer to say, you know what? I've been thinking about this. What do you think about it? Talk to me. Talk about some, you know, a godly man or woman, and let's not push these things under the rugs because doubts can become like a seesaw when you have one end weighted, 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 and it just bottoms out. And then when you open up the pages of the Bible and you're about to say, God, speak to me, you're like, but it's filled with errors. How do I even know God can speak through this? And if he does, how do I know fact from fiction? And all of these lies of the enemy, and it will cripple you. So, so take that, that moment to say that you're not second class if you have doubts or if you know someone who does. We just need to, to talk through them. Revelation chapter 11, verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged... And for rewarding your servant, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Okay? Time for the what of your servants? For rewarding your servants. You see, when we face Christ, it's going to be um, an issue of reward. So, not only do we know our obedience to Christ does matter, because some people have been told God has it all figured out, and it doesn't really matter what you do. In fact, William Carey who was a pioneer missionary to India, he was told by a man in his church in England, he says, if God is going to convert the heathen, he can do it without you. Isn't that interesting? Carrie began to feel the leading of the Holy Spirit to go be a missionary. 
And the belief was so twisted then, they said, well, if God's going to save him, he's going to save him. He doesn't need you to obey his word that said to go over there and tell him about him. I mean, how, how elementary is that when Jesus told us to go tell him? I mean, Jesus is big enough. You know, that's when, that's when you don't tell somebody to, to, to grow up. You just need to tell them to shut up. All right. Just quote your pastor if they tell you not to share the gospel. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't want to get in the, I don't get in the flesh there. But I mean, it's like, it's like, seriously, who is so smart to tell us that Jesus didn't say to do what he told us to do? I mean, you can be the dullest knife in the drawer and be like, so that means I should tell people about him. But anyway. Um, we also know that our obedience, disobedience matters to Christ. Uh, Matthew 6, um, we're not going to read these verses. He speaks about the arrogant Pharisees who stood praying in front of people just so that people could see how spiritual they are. And Jesus says the phrase, and they have their reward. That actually calls all of us who serve the Lord on any level, whether it's through teaching, preaching, myself, um, through, I mean, any of the missions that we do, which, by the way, we're going to go back to the uh, Hope Tree Children's Home on, I think it's the last Sunday in October. I believe, um, on the afternoon, and we're going to go do some ministry with the kids over there that are functional orphans. Um, that's basically what they are. So, you know, whether we serve in, in a music ministry in any way in this church, all of us should be kind of take a step back and say, Lord, would you reexamine my heart motives? Because I don't want any of this to be about me. Because if it is, it's going to be burned up during, during judgment. And one way that we can kind of gauge that is how we deal with conflict. Like I talked about on Sunday morning, I pray that God prepares my heart that if I am shot at and hit by whatever, that, that it would be this response of, of David to, uh, to Shimei, that the Lord has appointed him to curse me so that I would not be unduly exalted. Um, so the Bema Seat Judgment, let's try to, uh, to knock this out real quick. There are four points here. Um, based upon the text that we read in First and Second Corinthians and Romans 14, it will be honest. Um, fire is no respecter of persons. This has to do with God says He is a consuming fire. It means He's going to examine all of our motives, all of the reasons why we did things, and it's going to come out why we did it and for what purpose. It's also going to be individual. Um, in First Corinthians uh, five or three, rather, it speaks about we all. We all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That means that there will be no way that any believer will be able to say, well, the reason why I responded in bitterness is because that person hurt me. It's going to be individual, right? And we know that it's not what other people do to us. It's how we respond to it based upon our heart. It will also be a balancing judgment. Um, It very well could be that there could be some of us that have great ministries or that we're very well loved by people. Or you can even look at some ministries that have really, um, and I'm not trying to to beat a dead horse here, but um, Jim Baker, okay, back with that whole fiasco. Was that in the 80s or the early 90s? the, the, The 80s to where it was a growing Christian ministry, but it came to be known that at the very roots of it, it was absolutely corrupt in every sense. There have been other preachers who have been found. Um, the one out in Colorado, um, who was president of the NEA, the National Association—it's the National Organization of Evangelicals. I don't remember the exact an acronym, but it came to be found that he was connecting with male 
prostitutes and he was using methamphetamines at the same time. A very thriving church. Great worship ministry. The judgment seat of Christ will be a balancing. And I've heard many preachers say, and I agree with them, that on the judgment seat of Christ, it well may be, not to to cut down on any well-known preacher or singer or anyone, but it very well may be that people who have served in absolute obscurity, the guys who have had to pastor the hellion churches, okay? The people, the, the, the lady who has had to deal with an abusive husband for 30 years, but she stayed with him and prayed for him and prayed for him. She has experienced a deep work of the Holy Spirit within her heart. It may well be that the people we never have heard of are the ones who come through um, looking like gems. And finally, it will be a restorative judgment. I believe that it is in the Bema seat to where God will expose all of our heart issues And then when you take that divorced husband and wife, they will see that they are nothing more than sinners saved by grace. That will be a point of breaking when they kneel before the Bema seat of Christ and they see how unworthy they are to even be there. And then from that point, they will enter into the presence of God changed. The people who have had bitterness and hatred from a church, drama, incident, it is those people, the beam of seed of judgment, the Holy Spirit would say, you know what, you would so selfish in light of my grace, so prideful, and it will be the breaking point to where every single one of us, we all have some level of sin that we deal with. Amen? And when we stand before the Lord, it will be a restorative judgment to where He shows us that we have those things, but yet He cleanses us through the fire of judgment. Not a judgment to send us to hell, but a judgment that allows us to reap the rewards of what He has done in our life.